Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Welcome and thank you for joining us for what I think is a very interesting live stream event where we're going to talk about what is going on with the bond yields and what does that say about the story that we believe around a roaring 20s or a reflation trade or are we facing stagnation, as many people think, a secular stagnation because uh, the bond yields are falling and that means that we're gonna see low growth, low inflation and low rates forever. So let's, uh, let's get into it. Uh, let's go to Salita first. And Salita, what is going on with this 10-year? Why, why do we think that it's falling and, and, and then we'll get into how that may impact our overall view. Great, thank you, Mark. Uh, good morning and great to be with all of you. So first of all, um, you know, as you mentioned in your uh, initial comments here, concern around the economic recovery is one factor that has led yields lower. And of course, this is due to threats like the rise of the Delta variant, which is complicated, complicating uh, reopening plans, but overall, even though these risks have intensified even in just the last few days with cases ticking up globally and examples of restrictions coming back like the mask mandates returning in California, we don't believe uh, COVID-related developments will derail the longer-term growth outlook. And, and because of that, we don't foresee growth concerns as the ground zero for the recent decline in rates. Rather, um, we believe the decline is more due to the market's overall perception of inflation and Fed policy, as well as some of the technical factors that are impacting supply and, and demand dynamics. So the relationships between um, inflation and rates uh, has also been particularly interesting. Um, I think we have the, our first slide up here, and you can see this on the first chart, I think on the, on the, on the slide. Um, typically, when inflation is running hot, yields will rise. But in this case, CPI has continued to print above expectations, yet long-end yields have continued to decline. We think this is due to the market's belief that the recent rise in inflation will prove transitory and will eventually subside. Now, although we agree with this transitory view, we do not agree with the market's expectations regarding the Fed's preemptive reaction, which is also impacting the direction of the rates. And you can see that in the you know, second chart uh, on this very slide, the market thinks the Fed will preemptively hike rates to curb inflation and is pricing in the first rate hike at the end of 2022 and then uh, three by the end of 2023. And it has also moved expectations uh, for the longer term Fed target to one and a half percent versus the stated two and a half percent. So we believe this is too aggressive and think the Fed will allow inflation to run slightly above the 2% threshold as stated with the average inflation target objective. The, you know, the market's hawkish view has pushed the forward break-even inflation rate lower, and we can just move to the next slide um, for this. Um, as a result, uh, the longer end maturities have outperformed as inflation's concerns 
uh, wing. Now, this has resulted in the 530s year spread. This is the difference between the five-year treasury yields and the 30-year treasury yields, um, led it uh, to narrowing, reaching levels not witnessed since August of 2020. So we view this move as a bit overdone as technical factors are also influencing interest rates. The seasonal impact has resulted in low corporate issuance, uh, foreign buying has increased, especially from Japan. And, and finally, um, as you can see on the chart to the right, the Fed's objective to lower its cash balance ahead of the upcoming debt ceiling debate has kept Treasury issuance at unusually low levels over the past month. So, um, you know, if you go to the next slide, um, we don't believe these trends that, um, that driven yields lower will remain throughout the year particularly given our outlook for growth. Uh, although peak GDP growth may occur in the second quarter, uh, GDP will continue to remain strong given the strength of household balance sheets, pent up savings, and continued economic reopening. So we expect 10-year yields to trend toward uh, 2% by year end. So it, with this, uh... In, you mentioned the inflation being transitory. You know, look at housing prices in the United States going up. You look at commodity prices. What makes you think it's going to be transitory? Well, you know, the big increases in a few items have pushed up overall inflation recently uh, with the rebound in leisure travel, a notable contributor. Everybody wants to get out at this point. Um, for example, car rental prices have soared 88% year over year. Uh, giving rental companies an incentive to beat up used car prices, which also increased about 45% uh, year over year. So the cost of hotel stays has been rising quickly, and you notice this if you're trying to book your summer vacation or even Christmas break vacations, it's very clear, and is uh, really now above pre-pandemic levels. So prices are also rising at a more um, moderate pace uh, for a you know, broad range of goods and, and services. Businesses are paying more for their inputs, including labor, and passing the higher cost onto their customers. But as you can see in this chart, good prices have soared in recent months as the supply side struggles um, to keep up with strong demand. Service price inflation has picked up, but is still within the normal range. So in our view, it is really unlikely that high inflation driven by goods will persist as production bottlenecks are resolved over the next few months. Overheated prices for some goods should start falling towards more normal levels, reducing the overall inflation rate. So the main upside risk is that labor shortages and other capacity constraints will create more sustained inflationary pressure driven by services. And this is something we're, um, we're watching. Okay, now putting a couple questions about the Fed together. Uh, when, you know, rates really started to dump when uh, the Fed's June meeting information came out. So what is the Fed thinking and what is the Fed saying? Okay, so I think the Fed is looking to reach its dual mandate of price stability and maximum employment, right? It's moving closer on the inflation front, but the jobs reports, although strong, have still been a bit below expectations. So right now, the Fed is mainly focusing on payrolls, which are still down by almost 7 million from their pre-pandemic level. 
they want to see that gap narrow before they announce a taper. Now, no one is really quite sure how much payrolls need to increase before the Fed tapers, not even the Fed itself. Everyone suspects that some workers have you know, permanently dropped out of the labor force, and it may not be possible for payrolls to get all the way back to where they were in the near term. But you know, they will certainly be watching how much momentum picks up uh, this fall if you know if children and kids are able to get back into the classroom and once employment subsidies expire. So overall, the Fed just wants to see further substantial progress. Uh, they don't need to get all the way back to maximum employment in order to taper. If payrolls can get back to within, let's say, three to four, three or four million of the pre-pandemic level, that should be good enough as long as overall trends in the economy um, remain positive. And in the end, um, the Fed will have to make a judgment call, and they will also consider other measures of labor force, like like the unemployment rate, job openings, and also wage growth. So we don't really anticipate that the Fed will start tapering until the first quarter of 2022, but they will begin to prepare the market uh, in the months ahead to avoid any surprises. Now, Mark, you asked, what are they thinking and you know, what maybe messages uh, they have been sending, what are they really saying? So when it comes to Fed messaging, uh, Fed speakers have generally been offering a positive message on the economic outlook. Uh, Powell has been pushing back against the idea that the Fed needs to take immediate action to deal with high inflation. He's sticking with the view that the current high inflation rate will be transitory and that it would be a mistake to act prematurely when so many people are still out of work. However, he has also repeated many times that a 5% inflation rate isn't acceptable. And if inflation expectations move up too much, so that they're no longer consistent with the Fed's 2% target, then the Fed will take action to bring expectations back in line. Okay, so we're getting some questions on this. So let's just try to summarize. As we look at what's going on, we've said this recovery is strong. We think that going into the second half of the year, it's going to remain strong. And that is going to make bond yields rise closer to the 2% level in the second half of the year. And they've been falling that's been a variety of technical factors around the need and the supply and demand of treasuries uh, out there in the market. And also this Fed speak where it was jobs, jobs, jobs as a focus, and then hang on, the minutes come out and it's, oh, they actually are looking at inflation. And I think this is something that we highlighted in April when we said, look, there's gonna be these different narratives out there about is it a roaring 20s environment? Is it going to be an inflation environment? Is it going to be a low growth environment? And you know, we said we're not going to really know these answers because the Fed is going to continue to say inflation is transitory through September because they said that's, you know, it's all, not going to be till the fall till we really see it roll over. And so they've got a couple of stories out there and nobody thinks they really know as Salita highlighted they don't, the Fed doesn't even know when would they actually start the tapering? What do they need to see? And so we're going to have these back and forth between these different narratives as we get these different data points. But I think the overall point that the economy is recovering, that stocks are the best way to play that, that call has been right. And we think it's going to continue to be right as we are now into the second half of the year. So 
just to, to keep moving, another part of what has, you know, potentially impacted the picture of growth and therefore bond yields and other things is this Delta variant. And, you know, you can see it in some of the tra travel and leisure stocks. Uh, fears have been rising. And, and, you know, I think we've done a lot of work on, on COVID and Lachlan continues to do this. So, Lachlan, let's dig into this and give us a view on what is going on with this Delta variant. Sure, Mark. Well, as you say, there's been growing concern about the Delta variant, both in financial markets, but also in society at large. But to be very clear, we don't see it as something that is going to be a significant threat to risk assets, because our analysis is that the vaccines are reducing the burden on hospital systems. Uh, you can see that in the first chart here, actually, for example. If we look at the, you know, this is the UK data, but if we look at the vaccine effectiveness in a country like the UK, where the Delta variant is, is incredibly prevalent, 80 to 90 percent, probably more cases of UK COVID are now the Delta variant. And you can see that there, there continue to be breakthrough cases and there continue to be cases in the unvaccinated as well. But the dark line shows that the number of people in hospital has failed to track those cases upwards as happened in previous waves of the virus. So the real world experience here in the UK, a country with a high vaccination rate, is bearing out the lab studies that were done earlier in the summer. Those studies suggested that vaccines would work against Delta and that's exactly what we see. We also see data elsewhere. I mean, we could look at Singapore, for example, a country where they have very high testing rates, albeit a small population. And in Singapore, about a third of cases are in fully vaccinated people. That's about 200 cases for context. But over the last 28 days, none of those breakthrough cases have had anything other than mild symptoms or been asymptomatic. So again, showing that the vaccines are working in terms of reducing the severity of the disease and importantly, therefore, reducing the strain on healthcare services. Now, when that's the case, when you have a lower burden on healthcare systems, we think that allows governments in countries with widespread rollouts to begin to look through the case numbers. And that's the approach the UK government has taken with its reopening this week, for example. Now, it's fair to say that not all countries are going to be able to open up as rapidly as that because some have lower vaccination rates. There's different political situations and also not all healthcare infrastructure is as robust as we have in the UK and the US. But overall, we think that the Delta variant means a less even recovery, but it doesn't necessarily derail the recovery overall. And that still remains supportive for risk assets. I mean, do you want to say anything more about the staggering of the, the reopening and the risks it may pose in less vaccinated countries? Sure. Well, I think what we're going to see is the trend in the UK, a vaccinated country clearly, is for the rise in cases to continue. And we're going to see that. So we have to be clear that case numbers are going to go up. That's going to happen in countries that are unvaccinated or less vaccinated, at least as much as it's happening in the countries where the vaccinations are. Now, if we look at some of those countries, we're clearly seeing a significant rise here in Asia. Um, big spikes of infections. And of course, in countries where there is less healthcare service, where there are lower vaccination levels, that is having a real impact on, on health that is having a real impact. That means that probably these countries will have to maintain some restrictions for some time. But over time, as the vaccine rates catch up, which we believe they will, our central assumption is still that that link between cases and hospitalizations has been broken by vaccines. And you'll gradually, therefore, see less focus on cases um, and you'll gradually see people adjusting to the case numbers being there as long as the hospital systems are then able to cope. But I think it's right to say that it's going to take some time and it's not necessarily going to follow at the same rate as you see in the US and in Europe. 
Well, that challenge of reopening can also be an opportunity. So can you walk folks through how we're thinking about the COVID data, the reopenings, and what that means for our asset allocation? In the developed markets, as you point out, you know we already have the, um, you know we we have already been bullish on equities, and we've seen the vaccinations and we've seen the effect, and we've covered that. Maybe if we look and we've moved, if we move to the next slide, and we see some of the other regions where vaccinations have been running at a lower pace, but are now beginning to catch up. So in most developed economies, the vaccines have now peaked, the vaccine rates have peaked, and they're they're rolling over. Japan is a counterexample, an exception to that, where they started slow, and as you see in the chart here on the left, really by May they'd high vaccinated anybody. But then they had a big pickup with obviously the Olympics on the horizon. Uh, they reached over a million doses per day, so about 1% of the population by late June. And although it's fallen back a little bit recently, there may be some, some quirks in the data. I think there's a little bit of undercounting. But the bottom line is they've reached 34% of population have now received one dose. And we think they're on track to reach 50% by late September. So we expect to see that continuing up. And that, of course, should facilitate the reopening of the Japanese economy. And that should be good for Japanese stocks. If we turn to emerging markets, another region that we like, then we see a similar trend. Uh, the graph on this on the right is a little bit more complex, but what we've shown here is the rates in May of vaccinations, the number of the number of people per 100 being vaccinated every day. And then in the light bars, you see the number who are being vaccinated now. And you can see that there's a jump. So we've seen a big step up in the number of people. On the other hand, the total vaccination rate in EM is still low. So Japan's about 34%. The median EM country is running about 13 to 14% of its population has been vaccinated, so significantly lower. On the other hand, some regions, Brazil, China notably, are significantly higher. So we think that if you project forward at the current rates, and we think those rates are broadly sustainable, it's likely that most EM countries should get to about 65% of the total population vaccinated by the end of this year. And in China, they could even theoretically reach 100%. So the bottom line is, yes, EM countries have been hit worse than developed markets by the Delta variant, but that vaccination gap is going to narrow, and that should be supportive of their equity markets catching up with global stocks. Yeah, so I think we've been following the recovery the, vi the viral uh, picture and the recovery, we've been following that around the world and we're making steps towards what we see as a new phase to that. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the global wealth management business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.